We're going to be talking for the next few minutes on The Morning Show about a very thought-provoking book which uh, examines the relationship between white America and black America and the way in which cultural sharing has gone on in some really... uh, perhaps somewhat surprising and unexpected ways, and the way in which, uh, in particular, the black community views some of this crossover, and uh, in some respects, with, with a bit of alarm or even resentment. The book I'm talking about is called Everything But the Burden, What White People Are Taking from Black Culture. It is actually a collection of essays that uh, approach this uh, thought from, from various perspectives, and uh, the book is edited by uh, Greg Tate, who is a longtime staff writer at uh, the Village Voice and uh, has a, a number of of literary uh, uh, works to his credit and some musical uh, credits as well as uh, the uh, musical director of the well-known music ensemble Burnt Sugar. And we have Greg Tate for a few minutes to talk with us about this book called Everything But the Burden. Greg hey. Tate, we welcome you to the morning show. Oh, thanks for having me. You say in the introduction that this is admittedly a peculiar book about a peculiar fascination. Tell us why you were moved to to say such a thing about your own book and about the topic it explores. Well, the origins of the book are kind of peculiar in that um, the project was actually brought to me by uh, two editors at uh, Broadway um, who were both white, who were both fascinated by the emergence of Eminem as a a pop culture icon and also by sightings of, uh, like, young white kids at their suburban uh, train stops wearing backwards baseball caps and and baggy jeans and other forms of uh, hip-hop regalia. And they thought there was a book in this, and, and I did too, certainly knowing, you know, kind of the history of the imitation of black performance styles in American culture that go all the way back really to the plantation and to minstrelsy and uh, on up through, you know, uh, a little closer to our time, you know, through uh, the impact that you know, rock and roll had on an El- young Elvis Presley and that the, the blues and R&B had on the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Eric Clapton and so forth. So, you know, what we wanted to look at was um, kind of how, you know, this whole kind of attraction-repulsion effect that's going on in terms of, uh, you know, the black, con- black cultural contribution. I mean, the title comes from um, my mother, something I always heard her say that, you know, white people want everything that black people produce, but the burden of <laughs> of, uh, of being black. You know, and um, she wrote a poem of the same name. She wrote right? a poem of the same name. You know, and um, you know, it's kind of look at. You know, the the book is a way of exploring this whole fascination that takes place inside of a, a culture of scorn and you know, racial hatred and bestial treatment and the whole the whole lot of it. That's, what, of course, one of the points which I think is particularly interesting. Uh, when, when someone comes along and uh, emulates certain cultural ap- attributes right. uh, of, of the black community, uh, do you feel, and, and the writers who share their thoughts in this book, do you feel that that is being done by people that otherwise feel, as you say, um, scornfully towards towards blacks, or, or or isn't it being done by whites who happen not to feel that way? Well, I think that that it's one of those things that you look at in a multi-dimensional kind of way because um, you know, I mean, if people hadn't unearthed some of, uh, say, Elvis Presley's you know somewhat racially inflammatory comments, you know, in, in his his in his history, I don't think that um, 
you know, there would have been quite the uh, the ire that some people feel towards Elvis Presley because, in fact, um, when he first was heard on the radio, uh, he was played on black stations, and a lot of black people thought he was black and were surprised when he showed up at their, you know, in their town theaters to find out that, oh, <laughs> this is a white guy. You know what I mean? But, I mean, black audiences have always embraced um, white artists who they felt um, were really, you know, honoring, you know, their influence, in a sense, by um, by bringing their artistry, you know, to the fore. But, you know, it also took place historically in a time, you know, if we look at, say, blues and rock and roll, it takes place in a time when, you know, black artists were really excluded from having the same opportunities in the marketplace that um, some of their... Um, you know, kind of white inheritors had. In your introduction, you quote someone, I can't remember now who it is, who posed the question, I think some time ago, but maybe you think the question is still worth asking, okay. why does everyone love black music but nobody loves black people? Right. Uh, who was that who posed that question? Uh, it's actually um, a performance artist by the name of uh, Roger Guinevere Smith, and he actually did a uh, performance called uh, Huey Newton uh, for PBS that uh, Spike Lee shot, you know, where he told the, the Huey Newton story, but in, a, in an earlier work, he had posed that question, and it always stuck with me, because I think it kind of succinctly summed up, um, you know, some of the paradox that, that we're talking about today. Right. You say elsewhere in the, in the introduction of the book that this is a book about black resentment and discontent, mm-hmm. to no small and en- extent. And envy. Right. right. Now, one of the things I, w- I want to try to get a better handle of uh, because I, I have read the book to some extent, but okay. not really digested it to the extent that I want to. Um, are, are your various writers uh, whose essays are collected here, do they, by and large, write from a, a perspective of resentment, or are they writing about others in the black community who, uh, who resent this, what's called in some places, white piracy? Yeah, well, I think that... Um you know, as you go through the book, you see that it takes a lot of kind of left turns and odd angles in terms of looking at it. You know, That's my some, sense, yeah. Yeah, because some people write very personally. Um, there's uh, an incredible memoir in the book by a young writer named Cassandra Lane. Uh, it's called Skinned, where, you know, she talks about growing up in Louisiana. And, you know, Cassandra's a young woman, I mean, in her, in her late 20s, you know. So, I mean, the experience she's talking about is really from the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, but it's the experience of having white playmates up until a certain point when their parents decided that she wasn't good enough to play with their children anymore. You know what I mean? And, you know, she deals with, like, the hurt, you know, and resentment that um, this kind of provoked in her towards white women. And, you know, the book, in, in the essay, she talks about how she realizes that she has a problem with black men being attracted to white women because of this childhood experience. You know, so that's like one very kind of raw, personal response, you know, to, to uh, you know, to the thematic of the book. And then, you know, the other people who look at things in a much more academic kind of fashion, you know, almost. I mean, um, there's a woman named Renee Green in the book who really looks at the, um, the way race is represented in science fiction films, you know. And she, she uh, spends a lot of time talking about a film with uh, Charlton Heston called The Omega Man. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and she talks about um, uh, also the novels of the black science fiction writer, um, um, excuse me, Octavia Butler, you know, and how she deals with the slave experience in a science fictional kind of context, you know what I mean? But 
you know, it's, it's an attempt to really kind of look at this thing as broadly as possible in terms of the African-American response. You know, and so, I mean, writers emotionally are coming from a lot of different places, you know, and I mean, Carl Hancock Ruck's piece on Eminem, on one hand, you think it's maybe coming from this place of resentment, but what he's really talking about is how the need for black people to actually perform a stereotype of black culture is an oppressing thing in and of itself. The fact that black people have adopted this as an option in terms of how to respond to a, you know, a racist context is a limiting thing in and of itself. So, you know, the writers take, take you on a lot of journeys in these essays. Right. You know, and it, it definitely takes you a lot of places that, um, you know, I wasn't even expecting to go as an editor. I suppose one of the parallels that maybe we could draw about this would be uh, that it is perceived by some that, that uh, taking on... Um, uh, a like of, of of black music and adopting certain black fashion styles and so on, and yet not necessarily embracing any blacks as as friends right. would be a little bit the same as uh, if someone didn't mind their son playing with blacks on a basketball team, sure, but would really have a problem if he tried to uh, bring them home with him, or if one of them wanted to date his daughter or something like that. That somehow that would that would cross a line. Is that a, a fair parallel? I think so. I mean, I think that that the mythology and the pathology that's developed around race in American culture and the denial of, you know, the, the history of slavery, you know, that uh, has gone on as well, um, has got a lot of things twisted in a lot of people's mind about what's what in terms of, uh, you know, cultural identity and cultural authenticity and uh, cultural sharing and, and, and so forth. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, black, white, and other ways have a lot of confusion around their identity as Americans because of the way, how racially skewed, you know, um, the, 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 uh, the environment of the culture is, for one thing. You know, the fact that, um, you know, it's still such a heavily segregated society, you know, um, in terms of race, in terms of black and white, in terms of just where people live and how they interact socially. Right. You know, I mean, all these things have an impact in terms of perpetuating this mythology. Well, at the same time, I can turn on the television, you know, and go from channel to channel, and within, like, two, three, four, five seconds, there's going to be, um, you know, a black iconic figure, a black musical reference, um, you know, uh, a black stylistic nuance, you know, portrayed there. You know, so you have this peculiar peculiar, again, to use that word, um, impression that's left by people being socially segregated, but then at the same time kind of culturally bombarded, you know, with, um, with uh, you know, black archetypes and stereotypes. So it's, that's, I suppose, where this resentment comes from, and, and the fact that at least some blacks would like to, in some ways, maybe sort of hold some of this to themselves? Well, I mean, I think people have such a, a, a broad number of responses to the thing. You know, somebody was asking me, you know, how do black people feel about Eminem? And, you know, I couldn't possibly speak for all black people, but, uh, you know, among my friends, I have some people who are pretty politically militant who love Eminem and other people who can't stand it. You know what I mean? Hmm. And um, it really just depends on 
you know, how open-minded the, the person is to a certain extent and to what degree, you know, someone is willing to let go of, say, their feelings about racial oppression to accept, uh, you know, someone purely as an artist, you know, regardless of uh, the racial context in which he, he operates. Right. I'm reminded of a line of dialogue from an episode of ER with um, uh, the the head of the nurses who uh, is African-American. I can't think of her name now, but uh, in a conversation with another staffer at the hospital where where something has come up and, and the, the sense was that, that, that this was sort of sparked by maybe uh, latent racism. And, uh, and, and the one character who is white says, you know, this, this, this was not about race. And, uh, and this African-American nurse re- replies, um, uh, <laughs> with us it's always about race. Right. It's, it's easy for you to say, but for us it's always about race. And I suppose that's part of what we're, we're, we're talking about is, is that, that mindset that views everything that happens uh, on, on, on racial terms. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's inevitable, you know what I mean, um, because... You know, I mean, a Jasper, Texas happens, you know, and Amadou Diallo happens. So, you know, you know, in some senses, you know, that a lot of us kind of drop our guard. And then, you know, these kind of bestial incidents of, of racial violence occur that have such a pronounced history in terms of uh, racial interaction in, the, in American society. But um, as well, you know, a friend of mine used to say that, you know, to be black, in this country is to always affirm something, you know. And what he meant by that was, you know, you have a people who were designated incapable of living with whites and incapable of uh, intellectual development by, you know, one of the founders of the country. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, you know, I mean, who's, you know, some of whose statements on race, I mean, would make, you know, uh, Trent Lott look like a racial progressive. Yeah. You know, by you know, by comparison. Right. It's you know very I mean? striking to read yeah. some of those Jefferson quotations that you oh, include. You know, with, without a doubt. I mean, you know, I mean his 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 racial paranoia was uh you know, in some ways beyond comparison. And you know, he and it, for and for one thing, Jefferson seems to have believed that that blacks were incapable of profound thought. Exactly. You know, and this was even in the face of receiving letters from uh, the great mathematician and engineer and architect Benjamin Banneker and from the great poet and philosopher Phyllis Wheatley, you know, in his own time. You know, I mean, this is someone who, in the fa- even in the face of contrary evidence, you know, simply couldn't accept that, you know, really, he really felt that black people would be too resentful of whites after mm-hmm. the slave experience. You know, it's this incredible projection of guilt you know, um, and, and paranoia onto another people, right. you know, that really were more a reflection of what was going on in, in, in his head, you know what I mean? But, I mean, a lot of that has to do, you know, when you know that kind of history, you know what I mean, and you know that, you know, some of the, the, the most offensive ideas about race come from people who are educated, highly placed in the society, highly influential in the society as well. There are 18 essays in this in this book, and and we are are treated to all kinds of of different takes on yeah, on this question, sure. including uh, uh, a chapter about Eminem, as you said, a chapter right. about pimps, a chapter about thugs. One particularly fascinating fascinating essay, I think, 
talks about Muhammad Ali and George Foreman right. and Norman. Yeah, Tony Green. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the, the 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 contrast, for instance, between uh, Ali and and Foreman and what that says about uh, different different essays. What 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 do we uh, what do we learn from drawing those kind of uh, fascinating comparisons? Well, I think that you know, I mean, Tony Green, who wrote that essay, is a writer as well as a former athlete. You know, and um, he read Norman Mailer's white negro essay early on and as he says um, you know some of the things that you know male or some of the assumptions he makes about black culture in that book are just outrageous but he almost feels like somebody had to go there just to break the ice in terms of the way white people read black people and and black people's effect on white you know on white culture white society and so forth you know but he also goes on to say that he feels that some of male is writing on boxing you know, came the closest to anything he'd ever read to the experience of being an athlete on the field. You know, so Tony's coming from a place of great appreciation for Mailer. But, you know, if you see the film When We Were Kings, you know, you see Norman Mailer and George Plimpton in the film kind of going back and forth over the psychology of Norman, of uh, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. And it's just, it's, it's almost like hysterical to see, you know, these two literary lions <laughs> trying to probe inside the psyches of these two black men who have pretty much been sent to Africa to beat each other's brains. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And finding that that, um, that for all their powers of erudition and um, psychoanalysis, they can't figure out either one of these guys, <laughs> what they're really about. Yeah, they don't you know come I mean? particularly like, close. Yeah, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, so in a way, Tony's piece is almost like a send-up of watching these two guys kind of uh, tear their hair out, trying to understand these two black athletes. You know, at the same time, you know, he's just talking about how, you know, as a as a young black man, he identified more with Foreman than with Ali, you know, because, uh, because he was a stocky kind of guy, you know, and not that fast on his feet. You know, people made assumptions mm. about him as an athlete, too, you know what I mean? And that's, uh, you know, that's kind of typical of the way this book kind of rings changes you know, in theme and variation, you know, out of, uh, out of the topic. Right. You know? And, uh, we yeah. have, to, we have just a minute or so, but I wanted to get a sense of, did these essays already exist or did you assemble them? No, they're, um, except for the, the Hilton House piece on Richard Pryor and yes. the Mafia Deal War essay about the impact of, um, you know, uh, soul music on youth in Mali in Africa in the 1970s. They're all original essays. Very good. And you hand, chose these writers, and yes. did you give them their topics, or did you set them free to explore what they wanted to? I did. I, for the most part, I gave them their topics. A few rebelled and kind of <laughs> came back with their own. And then um, there were, you know, in the piece of the, in the, in the instance of the Cassandra Lane essay, um, another one of my writers who was her professor, uh, writer Mary Dankwa, who wrote about uh, kind of the impact of Michael Jackson's kind of skin bleaching on uh, black people in Ghana. Yes. You know, uh, she she had Cassandra Lane send me her essay, and I said, "Oh, this is great. Got to be in the book." Right. It is yeah. a it's a fascinating uh, kaleidoscope of of various uh, voices and perspectives. The book again is called Everything But the Burden: What White People Are Taking from Black Culture. Greg Tate has edited it. The book is published by Broadway Books. Greg Tate, uh, really interesting to talk with you, and very interesting to read this book. I thank you for your time. All right. Thank you.